Hi there, I trust that you're all well and that you're thoroughly enjoying this series and gaining a lot of clarity concerning eternal judgment. Well, as I promised, today we're going to be looking at contrasting beliefs about the afterlife. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through to 2, it says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. How many of you know that demons can teach? Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So when people's consciences are seared, when they've been seared, it often opens them up to demonic revelation. And if you look at how a lot of the cults and sects started, you'll see people saying things like, um, I saw this angel and this angel said A, B, C, D to me. And with that electric writing, or whatever you want to call it, a demonically inspired writing, they came out with the doctrines of that particular cult. And sadly, many of these cults and sects have emerged and they're leading people astray. And the one area that seems to always deviate from the Bible is specifically the theology to do with the afterlife. If you look at all these cults and sects, you'll notice that they tend to deviate when it comes to that in particular. In addition to other things, obviously, the centrality of the cross, etc. So many people, sadly, with a Christian background, with a Christian background, have become universalists, right? Believing that everyone will be saved one day. Even with this belief, within universalism, within that, there's some who've become pluralists. So they believe that God has made multiple means by which people can be saved. You see, with some people with universalism, they'll still say, it's through Jesus, it's through Jesus, but he makes a way, even though you haven't accepted him, he'll still make a way. And some of them have become pluralists who believe that it doesn't matter which route you take you know, God will still somehow find a way of saving you, right? And another growing belief is that of the annihilationist. And these people believe that God condemns the wicked by causing them to cease to exist. And so you'll see with a lot of sects and even certain Christian circles, that's the belief that, you know what, uh, there's no eternal punishment. What happens is you just annihilate it. You cease to exist. And in this message, I'm going to start off by outlining some of these contrasting views to do with the afterlife from different world religions and sects. And um, <clears throat> as I share these with you, I'd like you to ask yourself what the implication of each viewpoint is. You know, how does it affect how people live today? And then from there, we'll actually examine what the Bible says about hell and what the Bible says about heaven. And I want to end on a good note. So that's why I'll talk to you about hell in the middle. Okay. Even though uh, Jesus spoke more about hell than, than heaven, actually, you know, in terms of like the amount of teaching he did that's recorded. Okay. He spoke about hell more than anyone else in scripture. So we learn a lot about what hell is like through the teachings of Jesus, actually. The decisions that we make on earth are so important because death is final, isn't it? You know, contrary to what some people believe. And there are no second chances after we die. Our eternal destiny is determined on the basis of what we do in this life. So what are some of these contrasting views of the afterlife? Uh, firstly, the Greco-Roman religion, 
all right? And people like to call it Greek mythology and so on, but it was actually a form of religion. The ancient Greeks believed that people died and ended up in Hades, a gray and misty place where the Lord of the Dead ruled. Others believed in a paradise-like place called Olympic Pantheon on Mount Olympus, where gods such as Zeus lived and decided the fate of humanity. The people who lived a good life and were constantly in the minds of the living enjoyed sunny pleasures of uh, Elysium. Those forgotten wandered eternally into the bleakness of Hades, while the wicked fell into dark pits called Tartarus. Although the gods decided the fate of every individual on earth, someone could actually control his fate through divination and sacrifices to them. So that explains some of the behavior that we would see and why people did what they did and why they needed to be remembered by people and why they needed to be heroes, etc. What about the Baha'i faith? The believers here consider that the soul of a human being is eternal and good, and it is the work of every individual to draw closer to God. Unlike most other religions that they have had their own specific God, the Baha'i believe in one God who has shown himself through all other religions in the world. All right. So according to Baha'i followers, heaven and hell do not exist. The two are states of being either close to God or far from God. And the Baha'i believe that most other religious groups are mistaken when they interpret heaven and hell to be physical places as opposed to seeing them as symbolic representations of distance from God. What about Hinduism? The Hindus do not believe in heaven or hell. Their life after death system of belief is that of reincarnation. Hindus believe that when someone dies, he or she is born into a different body, largely determined by his or her previous life. Hindus believe that human beings are bound to illusion and ignorance, but they can escape it during rebirth when their souls realize their true nature. Chinese traditional religion, you've heard of yin and yang and that kind of thing. So those who live according to these tra traditional uh, beliefs in China or of China, they believe in a peaceful life after death, right? One that an individual can attain through performing specific rituals and showing great honor to ancestors. Upon death, the god Cheng, Sheng Wan, uh, determines whether someone's spirit is virtuous enough to go and dwell with the immortals in Buddhist paradises or to a hell followed by an immediate rebirth into their next reincarnation. What about the Sikhs, Sikhism? Okay, this is one of the most popular religions in India with approximately 25 million followers. And Guru Nanak founded Sikhism in um, 1500 AD. And what's interesting about this is it's actually a religion that has grown to the point of having over half a million followers living outside of India, that is, right? According to the beliefs and practices of the Sikh, a person's actions determine whether his or her soul is destined for great agony and pain in the underworld or they end up emerging with God in the spiritual world. A soul caught in the cycle of reincarnation can overcome it through meditating on the Sikh God, Ik Onka, overcoming self and becoming a saint soldier fighting for good. So you can see some of the differences between that and Hinduism. What about the Aztecs? 
Many of you have maybe studied the Aztec Empire and you, you know, you love some of their artwork and so on. But what about their beliefs? The Aztecs believed that when on their own, when someone, um, one of their own, died, they would enter into any one of the three places they believed was where they would spend their afterlife. They had Mict clan, they had a Tlaco clan, and they had this uh, son or son. Women who lost their lives during childbirth and fallen warriors were believed to transform into hummingbirds. Those who drowned were believed to go to Tlaco clan, and those who died from horrible causes ended up in Mict clan. So they actually had different places for the afterlife based on circumstances of death, etc. What about Buddhism? According to Buddhism, a Buddha who has attained a state of enlightenment is the only one who gets to enter nirvana. That's the highest state of perfect peace and happiness where one's individual suffering and desires do not exist. Those who fail to achieve nirvana are reborn immediately after their death where they receive another body. What about the Mormons? Mormonism actually teaches that all people first go to spirit paradise or spirit prison based on one's worthiness. Now, if you want to know what Mormonism is, you, you see some of their churches. It's written Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. Okay. Uh, but it's a cult. And spirits in these places continue to work towards exaltation. Right. According to Mormonism, anyone who didn't have a chance to accept Mormonism may do so in the spirit world after physical death. Mormonism also teaches that there are multiple eternal destinations. You might have heard that Mormons believe that there are many heavens. Right. They call it there's the celestial kingdom. Then there's the terrestrial kingdom. And then there's the celestial kingdom and outer darkness. Only Mormons who are worthy enough during their life on earth will receive the highest destination of the celestial kingdom and become gods with eternal families. Other less faithful Mormons and non-Mormons receive lower destinations in the celestial or terrestrial kingdoms. Mormons believe that only those who reject the church and persecute it go to outer darkness. And that's Mormonism's version of hell. Those who have had marriages sealed in a Mormon temple can continue in eternal marriages in celestial heaven, ruling over their planet and procreating spirit babies through intercourse. All right. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that when a person dies, their existence completely stops. So that's the annihilation viewpoint, right? This is because uh, they say the Bible makes it clear that human beings do not have an immortal soul that survives when the body dies. So for them, they just believe that when you die, your soul also dies. Witnesses believe that hell, as traditionally portrayed, doesn't exist. Unlike many other religions, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that death is not just the death of the physical body, but also the death of the soul, right? Um, that's what they believe. As one recent uh, witness publication noted, the life we enjoy is like the flame of a candle. When the flame is put out, it does not go anywhere. It is simply gone. At death, you and I are simply gone because we have no immortal soul or spirit. This, uh, you know, there's no invisible part of the human that leaves the body and lives on after we die. 
Okay, that's what they talk about. Now you might be wondering, but what about those 144,000 that they talk about? Okay, so based on their understanding of, their script, of the scriptures, such as Revelation 14, 1 to 4, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that exactly 144,000 faithful uh, witnesses go to heaven to rule with Christ in the kingdom of God. And the witnesses uh, understand Jesus' words at at John 3 verse 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. They believe that that applies to those 144,000 who are so-called born again as anointed sons of God in heaven. Okay, um, His kingdom or government is prophesied to replace human rule and a select remnant of Christian witnesses or Jehovah's Witnesses, 144,000, they hold a heavenly hope of ruling alongside Jesus. Okay, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, it's unreasonable to assume that a loving God will destine humans to suffer horribly in eternal misery, as if having no life or consciousness isn't punishment enough. All right, witnesses argue that, as clarified in the case of Adam, dust you are, and to dust you will return. Seen in Genesis 3, verse 19, in their New World Translation, that's their version of the Bible. And so they say this seems to suggest that the soul or person ceases awareness at the time of death. So they believe that teachings of hellfire are contrary to what's described in scripture. What about the, the Islamic religion? Muslims believe in the concept of paradise, what they call jana, which is where people go if they've lived a good life. Okay, Muslims also believe in hell, right? what they call jahannam which is where people go if they've lived a bad life or have committed shirk. One canonical idea in Islam is that the angel of death appears to the dying to take out their souls. The sinner's souls are extracted in the most painful way while the righteous are treated easily. Another common idea adds that after the burial, two angels, uh, Munka and Nakia, come to question the dead in order to test their faith. The righteous believers answer correctly and live in peace and comfort, while the sinners and disbelievers fail and punishment ensue. The time period or stage between death and the end of the world is called the life of Bazak. Suicide, euthanasia, and unjust murder as means of death are all prohibited in Islam and are considered major sins. So it's interesting when you explore, uh, even uh, from the Quran, for example, you know, what these guys believe. Believing in an afterlife is one of the six articles of faith in Islam. The deceased are held to be in... um, They believe to be in an intermediary state until the day of resurrection. Muslims believe that in paradise, they will be allowed to keep all their wives. And the Quran also teaches that Allah will furnish huris, right, as additional wives. And these are pure, right, pure in body uh, and pure in character available for these men. And then finally, the Seventh-day Adventists, they reject the traditional doctrine of hell as a state of everlasting conscious torment, okay? So they're also into annihilationism, right? They believe instead that the wicked will be permanently destroyed after the millennium, 
right? Um, that's what they believe. And um, if you look at Seventh-day Adventist teachings, they'll talk also about the new heaven and new earth. They'll talk also about um, being in heaven for a period of a thousand years and then coming down and God coming down and joining mankind in the new heaven and new earth, right? So those are their beliefs. Now, now that we've seen some of these contrasting beliefs, and that was important for me, so that when you are listening to people speak or you see their lifestyle, you can also link it up to their beliefs around the afterlife. And also understanding that part of our Christian doctrine is actually being able to teach on what does the resurrection of the dead actually look like? What does the afterlife actually look like? Because what we believe about the afterlife affects how we live our lives now. So what does the Bible actually say about hell? You know, there are few words in the Bible that we translate as hell. There's Sheol in the Old Testament, there's Hades, there's Gehenna, there's Tartarus, which is used actually by Peter to describe where Satan and his angels were sent. Now, as we endeavor to examine a biblical view of heaven and hell, let's have a look at Jesus' account of Lazarus and the rich man. And I like this account because it's shared with us by Jesus, right? And some people believe that this wasn't actually a parable. It was actually a true account, an account of something that happened, partly because Jesus actually used a name, Lazarus, and he didn't typically use names when he was um, sharing and teaching from parables. So Luke 16, verse 19 through to 31, it says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, sometimes known as Abraham's bosom, all right? The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where, there was, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So it was believed that um, the saints of old, from the Old Testament, their place was Abraham's bosom before the resurrection of the dead, all right? So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us, and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now that's so powerful, Jesus' account. 
And we know that today there are many people who don't believe, even though Jesus rose from the dead. And there are many things we can unpack from this particular passage. And as we go on, we will make reference to it. The first thing we need to understand about hell is that hell is a literal place that was prepared for Satan and his fallen angels. Right? In, uh, and you see this in Matthew 10, 28. You see it in Matthew 5, 29 to 30 and 23, uh, 33. All right? Matthew 23, 33. Um, <clears throat> it will also become an eternal place of judgment for all those who follow Satan. So although it was prepared for Satan and his, follow, and his uh, fallen angels, it will also be a place of eternal judgment for those who follow the devil. Right? In Matthew 10, 28, it says, Do not be afraid, this is Jesus speaking, of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In Matthew 5, 29 to 30, it says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Are there friends that are causing you to stumble? Are there people around you that are causing you to forsake the gospel? It's better to get rid of them than to end up in hell. In Matthew 23 verse 33 Jesus says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? So there are certain people who will not escape. And I know that the, with universalism, there's that teaching that, no, 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 no. Um, it's a teaching of ultimate reconciliation, they call it, right? Where God will reconcile all things to himself. But here Jesus is saying, how will you escape being condemned to hell? The second thing about hell is that it's a place of torment, in Luke chapter 16, verse 23, we saw, it said, In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he was in torment. In Revelation 14, 9 to 11, it says, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead, or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Now, some people who do not believe, some of these sects who do not believe in um, everlasting torment, everlasting wrath, their theory is that how can God say he got rid of sin, he got rid of wickedness, if there's this uh, blip, right, forever and ever called hell where people are still suffering. Surely he got rid of those things. But we have to stick to the word. It's, it shows us that hell is eternal, right? 
<clears throat> the third thing we must understand about hell is that it's a place of full consciousness. And we see this in this account of Lazarus and the rich man. This rich man could remember. This rich man could feel things. Okay, He was not annihilated into the space where he just couldn't feel anything. No, he could remember. He could think. His soul was still functioning. Contrary to what some people believe that when you die, your soul also dies. No, this guy, was he remembered. Hey, but there's my family there. Hey, there's Lazarus. Hey, why don't you do this? He had a form of intellect. The fourth thing to understand about hell is that hell is a place of wicked companions. It's a place of wicked companions. You see in Matthew chapter 23, verse 14 to 15, it says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of, the, of hell as you are. Okay, so there will be more than one person in hell, right? Ephesians 5 verse 5 says, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So when we talk about wicked companions, one of the things to understand is that, you know, hell is not going to be a place of, hey, well, at least all my friends are here and we can do our thing and have fun together right? You will see the wickedness of those companions. There's nothing pure in hell. There's no love in hell. You can't enjoy companionship of friends there, right? Uh, you see the wickedness. You see the depravity. The fifth thing I want to share with you about hell is that it's a place of groaning. It's a place of weeping and it's a place of wailing. In Matthew 13, I'm going to read from verse 41 through to 42, and then I'm going to read verse 49 and 50. Powerful. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will, they will throw them into the blazing furnace. Well, what would it be like? Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into blazing, uh, the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's clear in scripture that this is something that lasts eternally. It's not something that is just for a brief period. This is not speaking of some future date where some foreign emperor attacks the children of Israel, okay? This is talking about eternal fire. There's the eternality of hell. The sixth thing about hell is that it's a place of fire and brimstone that is not quenched. And we see this in Mark chapter 9, verses 47 through to 48. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. The seventh thing about hell is that hell is a place of everlasting shame and contempt. And we see this in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So their emotions in hell. They're things that one will feel in hell. 
the eighth thing about hell is that it's eternal. And I've been emphasizing this. And you see this in Daniel 12 verse 2, like we've just seen. You also see it in Matthew 25, 46. It says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Okay. In Daniel 12, it talks about everlasting punishment. In Jude 7, it talks about eternal fire. Those are examples of what hell is like. On another occasion, we'll be unpacking it further because, of course, there are a lot of questions and answers. Why would a loving God send people to hell? Why this? Why that? And we'll unpack it from that particular angle. Let's now look at heaven. What does the Bible teach us about heaven? You know that in our eternal state, there will be national entities and literal cities. For example, the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, right? Uh, in Revelation 21 verses 1 through uh, to the end and then Revelation 22 verse 5, right? Right up to there, right? Studying scripture, it appears there will be some sort of social structure and organization. There will also be diversity because it speaks of the nations, right? Uh, so the diversity doesn't go away in heaven, right? Because of complete holiness, that we will be walking in. It implies that we'll have supreme love for each other. We'll have satisfying fellowship with each other. When the Bible speaks of a new heaven and new earth, the word that's used in the Greek is the word kainos. And as many of you would know, kainos, the translation from, of the word new, which is kainos, speaks of new as in new in kind not just new as in recency. There's naos, which speaks of recent, you know, like we've got a new version of such and such a vehicle. This is talking about kainos, which is new in terms of type, new in terms of quality. And um, some commentators actually believe that it's a, a renewal of the old, this new heaven and new earth, while some have this uh, annihilation and replacement model where everything will start from scratch, right? <clears throat> and you see this in Revelation 20 verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. Right? And so that's the belief that there'll be nothing. They'll disappear. They'll disintegrate. And then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. In Second Peter chapter 3 verse 10 through to 13 it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. All right. <clears throat> Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Okay. So when we use the terms new heaven and new earth, it actually helps us to differentiate that from heaven in terms of God's dwelling place. And it gives us a sense of what we'll actually be doing. All right. That there will actually be some similarities to the earth as we know it in terms of like, hey, there are trees over there. I believe there are animals over there, not the ones that currently exist being resurrected or something like that, which is a question a lot of people ask, you know, will my dog go to heaven or not? But more in terms of 
some of the features that we've seen uh, on earth. We'll be seeing glorified versions of that. You know, and sometimes we don't look forward to going to heaven because we think it's weird. You know, it's this weird place and involves uh, just, you know, mellow, being so mellow and not actually actively doing anything. Right. But what if heaven actually involves doing the things we currently enjoy doing most here on earth, except we're doing it from a place of purity? Just imagine that. I like what Alan Gomez said, that the notion of spending eternity in heaven in a kind of disembodied or semi-bodied, ethereal, floaty and slumberous existence must go. All right. We will engage in physical activities in heaven. And we will have physical resurrection bodies. We'll enjoy social interaction with each other. And we'll exercise responsibility and service. We will rule and we will reign. And I've outlined below <clears throat> some specifics that are outlined in the Bible with regards to heaven. So let's unpack this. The first thing is that heaven is an actual place created by God. In Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 1 and verse 4. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In Deuteronomy 10 verse 14 it says, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Notice the use of the plural when it talks about heavens in this passage in Genesis, you see. And it, 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 it's simply because the word heaven is used to describe three places, sometimes called the first heaven, the second heaven, and the third heaven. So let's unpack that a bit. The first heaven is the atmospheric heaven that we see when we look up, right? When we look up into the sky, it's that, right? And we see this in scripture, for example, the sky, and we see it in Genesis 1 verse 8, Matthew 16 verse 3, the clouds, Daniel 7 verse 13, right? The clouds of heaven. So weather phenomenon, wind, rain, hail, thunder, lightning, okay? The birds of heaven, Job 35 verse 11, Daniel 2 38. So that's the first heaven. The second heaven is basically outer space that serves as the context for the planets and the stars. So descriptions that apply to the second heaven include the sun, the moon, the stars. And we see this in Joel chapter 2 verse 10 and verse 30 through to 31. Uh, the constellations, the stars, okay? Um, all those galaxies, Isaiah 13 verse 10. The third heaven is a spiritual place called paradise that serves as the dwelling place or throne room of God. Right? So, so heaven is described in a number, way, number of ways in scripture. And um, the descriptions and the characteristics that apply specifically to the third heaven, because we're talking more about that today, um, I'm going to unpack. So the third heaven, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through to 4. This is Paul speaking, and he says, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up 
to the third heaven. So he's not talking about to the clouds. He's not talking about to the stars. He's talking about the third heaven as in paradise, what we're talking about now, right? Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell, right? And so that speaks of the third heaven and that's the phrase that he uses, okay? Another similar term that's describing what we're calling this third heaven is the paradise of God. And in Luke chapter 23, 43, do you remember when Jesus was on the cross and there was uh, the other guy being crucified also? And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. This actually shows us that there's, we go home to be with the Lord. All right. We don't stay in purgatory or some other place. We go home to be with the Lord. Right. Then at the time of the resurrection, we get our resurrection bodies. Right. Uh, but Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Isn't that beautiful? In Revelation 2 verse 7, it says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, another term that's also used to describe that third heaven is his sanctuary. And in the book of Psalms 102 verse 19, it says, The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven, he viewed the earth. Can you see? His sanctuary and heaven being used synonymously. Then the presence of God, to be in his presence. In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24, it says, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Okay, God's presence, heaven, same diffs. And then also the term heaven of heavens. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, it says, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens in the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Okay? The heavens of heavens. Right? In the book of Psalms 68, verse 33, it says, To him who rides across the highest heavens, the ancient heavens, who thunders with mighty voice. Another term that's also used, and this will be the final one I'll talk about, is the throne of God. The throne of God. In Isaiah 66 verse 1, it says, This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? So what is heaven going to be like? It's a place of God's dwelling. It's a place of God's dwelling. God is referred to as the God of heaven. So in a sense, that's the primary place he lives. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 30, Then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and deal with everyone according to all they do, since you know their hearts, for you alone know the human heart. Secondly, it's a place of enjoyment will actually enjoy heaven. Some people who are carnal kind of think it's just earth is the place of enjoyment, but you know what? Heaven is going to be boring. What are we going to be doing? They're going to be these like fat babies with wings, just singing or playing the violin or something. And I'll be just parked off there, just, you know, 
praise and worship 24-7 type of thing. Oh, that'll be boring, right? But it's actually a place of enjoyment. In Revelation 22, 1 to 5, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down to the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Interesting. So there are nations involved here. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. So we'll be serving. We'll be doing stuff. Okay. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They'll... They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Hmm. So we'll be reigning, we'll be serving, right? We won't need light. We'll be enjoying fruit. It's also a place of no sin, no sickness, no suffering, no disease, no death. And this gives us power when we're praying because Jesus says, pray like this, on the, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what is heaven like? Revelation 21 verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So we'll be in a new dispensation. Revelation 21 verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it. So there'll be no sin, okay? Everything will be done from a pure motive. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Powerful. The fourth thing I want to say is that it's a place of rejoicing in God's presence. Right? In Revelation 14, verse 1 through to 5, it says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Let me just say something about biblical symbolism, okay? 144,000 comes from 12, right? It's an emphasis of the number 12. And in biblical numerology, 12 has a representation, just like seven has a representation, just like one, just like three have representations. So it's so important that we not we don't just say, oh, this is symbolic, and then, oh, this is literal. And there's some people who will just take what they want to be literal, and then other things somehow, they don't make them literal, they make them symbolic, all right? Um, <clears throat> but you can see that this number stems, it stems from the symbolism associated with 12, with the number 12 in scripture, all right? And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased 
from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Okay? There's symbolism throughout there, I believe. The fifth thing about heaven is it's a place of enjoying fulfilled promises. In Revelation 22, verse 5, it says, There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. It's a place where we will enjoy that fulfillment of the promises that God has, um, has made. The sixth thing is that it's a place where there'll be no marriages. Right? Contrary to what some sects believe and so on, in Matthew 22, verse 30, when Jesus is having those discussions with the Sadducees, etc., right? it says, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. And I know for some people that's a sad thing. It's like, oh, no marriage, you know? And for other people, it's like, yay, free at last. But the point is, there will be no marriage. And it's important to establish that because some people have these ideas about, oh, then I'll be able to do this, then I'll be able to do this, then I'll take on these wives and that. And we see that with those sects. The seventh thing is that it's a place where our knowledge will be much more than it is now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12b, it says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Right? So the fact that there will be no sin to affect our mental powers means that our mental powers will be stronger. We won't be omniscient like God, like knowing everything, but there'll be a fullness of our knowledge, right? <clears throat> and we'll keep growing from glory to glory when it comes to knowledge. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 18, it says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How will our intellect actually work? We'll actually remember past experiences, but they won't affect us negatively. We won't be harmed by them, right? We'll turn our past into praise, our tragedies into triumph, right, uh, in heaven. We will recognize each other. We will recognize each other. We'll remember, remember how the disciples were able to see that, oh, hey, wait a minute, but that's, that's the resurrected Christ, Okay. It doesn't look exactly the same. This is glorified body, but yeah, I know. And if you look at the walk to Emmaus, God had to specifically blind them to recognizing Jesus. That's why those two disciples who were talking and so on didn't recognize Jesus. But the norm was that uh, you can recognize someone that, oh, this is person X in their resurrected body. So we'll be able to recognize each other. Amen. So that's something about hell, something about heaven. And something about the contrasting views concerning heaven and hell and the afterlife. May God bless you as you continue with this study. And as I promised, I will unpack some of these themes a bit further, especially when we start talking about, oh, okay, um, what does a resurrected body actually look like? Does the Bible say something about that? Oh, why would a loving God send people to hell? Does it make sense to me? We will unpack all of that. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for the things that you are teaching us. Oh Lord, we want to obey you. We want to live for you. We want to remain yielded to your Lordship, yielded to your word. And so we say, come, come and help us as we preach the gospel. Come and help us as we help others. Come and have your way in our hearts and in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you.